22 years in a row, Americans have rated nurses as the most trusted profession, and there's a need for more of them. There are projections, the nursing field will grow 6% in the next eight years, faster than the average for all occupations, but nurses face daunting challenges. We keep hearing the word resilient and that we need to make people more resilient. I don't know um, how you make a nurse who has experienced 17 deaths in seven days more resilient, but we have to look at the work environment and how in, you know nursing is inherently stressful, but when we have more deaths and more bad outcomes, that does take a mental toll on any human. Our guest today is the president of the American Nurses Association, Jennifer Mensick Kennedy. Dr. Mensick Kennedy earned her PhD in nursing from the University of Arizona and also holds an MBA in healthcare administration. We know the likelihood of healthcare workers being exposed to violence is higher than prison guards and police officers. So with one in four nurses having been assaulted at work, and we know that 29% of nurses in a survey have said they have faced violence in the last year. This is Conversations on Healthcare. ANA President Jennifer Mensick Kennedy, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And congratulations. Uh, we read that Modern Healthcare recently recognized you as one of the 100 most uh, influential people in healthcare. So our congratulations. Thank you very much. It's a privilege to, to have that. Yeah, you know, we have lots of issues to ask you about, and we're looking forward to this conversation. Let's start with workforce. Uh, there's a recent survey by the American Nurses Foundation found that 90% of respondents say that staffing shortages at their organization is a serious problem. I wonder if you could just share with our listeners, what are the challenges nurses are facing in terms of staffing shortages? No, absolutely. You know, this is really important. And I, I, I think the, one of the important parts to know is that we had staffing challenges before COVID. And so these are not new issues, um, but these issues became so much worse during COVID when we had some higher turnover, we had nurses going into traveling positions because what was occurring was nurses were looking for um, some work-life balance. They were looking to have, you know, they needed time for themselves. It was a very, very stressful time. Mm -hmm. And so while some organizations have recaptured some of those nurses that have left, they're still at much higher um, from a turnover, turnover perspective than we saw pre-COVID. Well, Jennifer, uh, you have some data that I think is uh, actually maybe well-known within nursing, but not so well-known in the public about what happens when there's inadequate staffing, and particularly in the acute care setting, the ratio of patients to nurses. Uh, and I believe that your data shows that uh, when we exceed what has been determined to be the ideal ratio based on the complexity of the patient and the setting by even one additional patient, that the chances of a patient actually dying within 30 days of hospitalization increase by 7%, and that those odds double if you increase that same ratio by two patients. Yeah. Yeah. This, it seems, should be at the top of the headlines on a daily basis. But how do administrators and lawmakers uh, react when you share these details with them? No, I, I think people are concerned and really want to do something about that because, as you noted, 
for one addition for every single additional patient, the likelihood of you dying within 30 days of leaving the hospital increases by 7%. Of course, if a nurse had three additional patients above that safe level, each patient within that group has a 21% increased likelihood. So that continues, you know, to escalate. And so there's a lot of stressors on, you know, from an organizational perspective that says, well, where are we going to get these nurses? But how can we you know, keep nurses if we continue to have short staffing in these organizations? So we really do need to focus in on items, um, organizational, the environment of those organizations where nurses, one, want to stay in those, organ in those environments and work in the hospital, and then also be able to provide the appropriate level of staffing. So we know that organizations can get down below, you know, between a five and a 10 percent turn turnover rate, which is much lower than a 21% uh, turnover rate. If we focus in on the work environment, such as um, staffing committees, shared governance, listening to nurses' voices are so important. And then also being able to provide um, assistance in other areas. Quite often when we start looking at hospitals and they start cutting resources that the nurse is the one that ends up providing housekeeping services, um, some of the dietary services. And so nurses end up taking on the workload of a lot of other disciplines when we really need the full approach. So not only do we need more nurses in the hospital providing care, but we also need the team around them to support the nurses so that nurses can do what nurses do best. And that's provide nursing care and not, um, provide, you know, overburden them with a lot of things that it doesn't take a nurse to do. So I think we need to really focus in on that work environment, being able to make sure there's enough nurses, and then providing that support, um, supportive team to help make sure the patient gets their best quality care. All right, I'm going to put my patient hat on and consumer hat on, scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. Should I be asking the nurse how many people you're taking care of? How, how would I know if they've got one or Absolutely. two more? What, what should, how do you empower me in terms of figuring out, uh, is this, uh, you've got three extra people and I'm, 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 I'm getting out of the hospital right away. <laughs> and you're worried about it. So I think that's, you know, I think patients and family members should be empowered to ask these questions. And what we've seen because this has become, you know, we've, we've been working on this for decades. We haven't really seen big improvement, but what we saw this last year was there were 19 states that have, you know, started to look at legislation within the state level. And in some states, for instance, like in Illinois, there's mandatory posting a requirement for each unit. So if you walk into a hospital unit, it actually tells you the number of RNs on that unit for that shift. So I think from a consumer perspective, as a patient, it is perfectly fine to ask, you know, how many nurses, how many RNs are on this unit today? And even supporting legislation that helps provide that transparency so that you know, as a patient, the organization, what's going on. And I would continue to, to you know, if you can, um, participate or attend hospital and healthcare board meetings when they have open board meetings. It's really important to provide that feedback on patient surveys that says, you know, we really need to work on this. So from a safety perspective, it is really important for us to also engage the patients and families in this. Let me just follow up uh, with a question around when there's conflict that happens 
uh, within the hospital, between administration and nursing. You recently were interviewed by the publication Chief Healthcare Executive, and you said that you see the potential for strikes in the near future. And we noted that last year there was a strike in New York City that lasted three days. Uh, I'm wondering, from your vantage point, how effective are strikes and when do you think uh, they're the best option? No, I, nurses want to t do the best for their patients and they want to provide the best patient care. And striking is usually always the last resort any nurse wants to take. And so this isn't something that they would do from a first perspective. Often when nurses do uh, vote to strike, this is something after months of um, work and partnership and being at the table and things just didn't come to fruition between them and the hospital or the administration. So nursing strikes are always a last resort um, after every other avenue has really maybe deteriorated. Well, Jennifer, I think uh, across our society and in many uh, professions, disciplines, work groups, uh, resiliency, wellness, and it's counter yeah. burnout, you know, despair, mental health issues uh, are everywhere. But I think it's shocking that the American Nurses Foundation survey found that 56% of nurses say they're experiencing burnout. Uh, and that's manifested in exhaustion, work frustration. And two thirds of those nurses surveyed said they're not getting any support for their mental health. Uh, what more can be done to help on this front, either within the institutions or within the profession? Generally, does the uh, American Nurses Association have any initiatives going in this area? Absolutely. This is a great question. And I think this goes hand in hand with the staffing issues. When nurses don't get those resources, um, you know, they do they feel like one of their only options is to maybe take a break from employment, you know, uh, leave the working, leave actually the nursing workforce or take a long break. And we need to look at how we staff and those organizations and, and the attributes in an organization that really support a nurse's well-being. And so things such as mandatory overtime, we have organizations that basically say, you know, we are going to make you pick up an extra shift. Um, regardless if, you know, and that's beyond their 40 hours a week. And so what we found is nurses on average work more hours than most Americans um, in other professions um, because of this mandatory overtime. So we really need to look at how that um, plays out. And then also the American, so we're looking at, you know, what does that look like from a legislative and a regulatory perspective? And I would also put out the American Nurses Foundation has a large toolkit of resources, um, such as the Wellbeing Initiative. And the Wellbeing Initiative is for any nurse, whether you're a member or not, can go in and take a confidential survey to look at um, your well-being. And there's a lot of free resources for nurses to be able to do on their own time in the privacy of their own home um, to be able to help them with their well-being. A lot of organizations um, have maybe have a well-being program, um, and I think they need to maybe market it more or provide it um, so that nurses and other healthcare providers um, can really access those services. I think one of the detriments is we keep hearing the word resilient and that we need to make people more resilient. And I don't know um, how you make a nurse who has experienced 17 deaths in seven days more resilient, but we have to look at the work environment and how you know nursing is inherently stressful, but when we have more deaths and more bad outcomes, 
that does take a mental toll on any human, regardless of how resilient you are. And so there's a lot more to, you know, resiliency training um, because nursing is just a different field. We want to care for people and we need to be able to also care for ourselves. And so remember noting to other nurses and you know, the code of ethic code of ethics for nurses says you need to take care of yourself as well so that you can take care of others. It's like the safety video on a plane that says, put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you help others. And we really need to help nurses do that so that they're well for others. Now, I want to just connect the dots between the regulatory issues and the, and the well-being issues you were just talking about. I think most of our listeners know that uh, licensing for nurses happens at the state level. And uh, we've seen that uh, about half the states have dropped questions about mental health from their licensing questions for physicians. I'm wondering, do you think they should also drop those questions uh, on nurse license applications? Absolutely. What we've seen is we had, I believe, one state this year actually add the question on their um, renewal. I just renewed my license in Oregon and the same question appeared. And it, it is a detriment for nurses who think, what if I do answer yes? What's going to happen? You know, and, and why do we need to know that question? And I think about that as that's a barrier if I needed mental health um, services that, you know, my license is my livelihood. And so we know nurses particularly have a higher rates of suicide. So why are we creating unnecessary barriers um, when we all, when people might fear having their license taken away, that they don't get the treatment and then um, end up um, uh, uh, actually in suicidal because of that. So we really do need to remove all of those questions from those licensing pieces. And also from a federal level, we need to reauthorize the Dr. Lorna Breen um, Act. It was funded on the last Congress. We need to refund it again. It's going to provide money and resources for organizations at a national level to be able to address this issue of uh, a provider um, and nurse suicide. Well, Jennifer, thank you for uh, shining a light on uh, that legislation. That was a very sad story from the the COVID uh, era, which I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with. But I, I want to talk about another uh, very sobering thing. We're going to talk about optimistic and positive things sometime before we get through the end of the show. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, uh, this, this is a real problem. Two nurses per hour are assaulted in the acute care setting. And I might add, though, we're going to focus on the acute care setting right now. This is also a problem in home care, long-term care facilities, uh, public health, uh, nurses are often at risk. How is A&A responding to this? And is this something that needs to be addressed on the federal level by CMS, or is it really up to the state legislatures to address it? Share your thoughts on and what's going on on that level. Absolutely, so we know the likelihood of healthcare workers being exposed to violence is higher than prison guards and police officers. So with one in four nurses having been assaulted at work. And we know that 29% of nurses in a survey have said they have faced violence in the last year. So I think what we need and what I've seen is we have work going on at a state level and a federal level. At a federal level, the American Nurses Association is um, 
has the Workplace Violence Prevention for Healthcare and Social Service Workers Act. And if this is passed, this legislation would require OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, to develop and enforce specific standards for healthcare and social service employers to hold them accountable for protecting their employees. I've seen some local um, state level legislation where increases the fines, makes it a felony, for instance, to assault a healthcare worker. However, so while those are um, good, um, it doesn't prevent it from happening. We would rather not see the violence or the assault happen. So how are we really working to prevent it in a healthcare setting? So that's why we really focus in on prevention in the federal bill. Um, but you know we have states working on it locally to do the same thing, whether it's making it a felony or working on how do we figure this out from a preventative perspective. Margaret, I know our good friend, uh, Representative uh, Joe Courtney, has been big on this issue, been a strong advocate of that, and uh, we'll certainly keep an eye on this uh, important piece of legislation. I want to talk about the ANA's uh, readiness and responsiveness. You know, we hear this troubling statistic that 63% of nurses say they have personally experienced an act of racism in the workplace. And I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners uh, ANA's journey on racial reckoning and its important national commission to address racism in nursing. Uh, how are they making a difference? Tell us more. Absolutely, thank you. So. You know, the American Nurses Association has recognized our own role um, and our past actions that have negatively impacted nurses of color and the perpetuated systemic racism. And so we are taking meaningful and historic action to begin a journey of racial reckoning. And so what we know is there was a period of time where the American Nurses Association did not allow um, nurses of color to be members. And so we have a lot of work to do to really um, reconcile our own history. We are, as you noted, the um, one of the co-leads to the National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing. And so when we look at this, we, we have seen individuals say that half of half of our respondents in surveys um, said there is a widespread racism and nursing issue still today. And many respondents um, so across the Hispanic, Asian, as well as other communities of color have reported personal experiences in the workplace of racism. And what we find is that black nurses are more likely to personally experience and confront acts of racism. And so we are really focusing in on um, education as well as steps to be intentional on being an ally and what allyship means in nursing. And additionally, we are, are coming out with a fourth series um, on what we call Project ECHO on racism in nursing, which is starting March 6th. And this is an, an eight-part interactive series that explores causes of racism, identifies strategies for taking action towards health equity. But what we're also doing is that we have position statements on on DEI and really and, and speaking up when we see um, our federal government and other um, uh, state level organizations pushing back on implicit bias or DEI activities, we have a position that says this is really important because we can't be nurses and take care of people if we don't address racism. Every person deserves 
the best healthcare, and we also need nurses that represent um, the populations and the communities that they serve. And so another another way we need to address this, and we're working on it, is um, you know nursing has been traditionally uh, female and white, and so increasing more males into the profession, increasing other races into the profession, um, so that we do reflect a society at large. Well, Jennifer, I know you're uh, challenged to take uh, strong positions uh, and put your voice uh, out there on behalf of the profession. And one uh, that is fairly recent, I think, uh, is that you've uh, challenged a new American Medical Association policy amendment recommending that advanced practice registered nurses, commonly known as nurse practitioners, clinical specialists, nurse midwives, uh, be licensed and regulated by both state medical uh, and nursing boards. Uh, tell us about that. Is that a recent uh, amendment? That would seem like turning the clock back a few decades. No, absolutely. And definitely this is a more recent um, activity for the American Medical Association. However, um, if you, from a state perspective, there are still many states that um, do not allow full practice authority for APRNs and those state level um, uh, medical associations continue to fight and push back. We, you know, you know, from a regulatory and licensing perspective, um, we are not going to license and oversee medical. And this, these are advanced practice registered nurses um, in their title. And so they are this are advanced practice of nursing. And so we need to be able to continue to oversee them from a nursing perspective. Every APRN is a registered nurse um, with their additional education and certification, residencies and clinical hours. And so we need to continue to um, oversee them. Now, we know we've had decades of studies that show that APRNs, um, nurse practitioners particularly, provide the same quality patient outcomes and care as do primary care physicians. Additionally, and this kind of gets into AI, as we see um, AI technology in the future, this really um, changes the dynamic and provides a different perspective of care. Again, further you know, reiterating the need for not having additional regulations and licensing and barriers. We have too many communities who do not have primary care providers and APRNs are those um, individuals. So why would we continue to put additional barriers um, for patients getting timely care um, in a time where we just have too many shortages of all providers when we know NPs are safe and can provide quality care in the communities, particularly rural communities um, where uh, physicians may not be. You know, over the last decade and a half, we've seen uh, states uh, legalize uh, cannabis and marijuana. And, uh, you know, that's been a big sea change. It hasn't happened at the federal level, but it's happening at the state level. And uh, we noted with interest that in September, the NA formally recognized cannabis nursing as a nursing specialty. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, why did you push for this and what benefits does it provide to nurses and patients? And I'd also maybe pull the thread a little more and say we're seeing uh, the intervention by Veterans Affairs on managing with ketamine uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we're seeing a whole new area open up. So tell us about at least the nursing side and maybe uh, other broader thoughts that you might have in this area. 
Absolutely. Um, it was fun to see the, res the, the worldwide response to that, um, that position statement. I think I got more traction on that position statement than sometimes anyone else, any other of the statements. And um, it's important because people are doing this. Um, they are um, utilizing uh, marijuana, whether it's recreational, recreational or for medicinal uses. And as a nurse, you need to be able to um, assess that patient, but also understand how that might, you know, why they're using it, and then how it also might impact other medical or nursing or healthcare treatments that patient is getting. So it's part of the patient. And, and when we don't focus in and understand how that might interplay with other healthcare pieces, um, we're really ignoring a very vital part of that patient. And that could actually lead to bad outcomes. Um, if a patient was to go to surgery or to take other medications. So it's really a part of the patient and it's important for nurses to be able to understand that, but there's also a specialty piece to that, um, especially with the work that the VA is doing. So it's really recognizing that this is a special area of knowledge that nurses can hold and really hone in on to help people who are maybe looking at it from a medicinal use perspective to really help them get the solutions and the outcomes they're looking for. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that we're moving that direction. And I think it's just a matter of time before we have a federal change, particularly. And, and most importantly, is we do need research um, and continued research in this area. Um, as, as it's become legal in different states, we've seen more research. And I think that's just going to help us understand um, so much about the use and why people are using it and those interactions. So we need to continue. It's not going to go away. And I don't think it served us any served us well um, to have you know, um, to have ignored it for so long in society. Well, Jennifer, uh, ANA is leading the way through a number of initiatives to bring attention to the role of nurses uh, in care coordination. And of course, nurses have always been engaged in care coordination and in all settings. But in our era of value-based care uh, and population health, this has taken on a whole new importance. We can do remote patient monitoring of the patient uh, in their home, the transitions between hospital and, and home and community, uh, et cetera. But you're also asking for payment for these essential services as a distinct component of patient care and, I think, payment to nursing for nursing services. This will be a big lift. What are you doing to overcome the hurdles to this goal? And where is CMS on all of this? Absolutely. This is great questions. Um, and so um, we are working this year actually on, on a, a multi-pronged strategy, one of which is bringing together a group of stakeholders, academics, and experts, um, expert leaders in this area in April to really look at the economic model of nursing and to be able then to, to put that out for, for use and consumption. We've also, from the American Nurses Foundation perspective, we have the Reimagining Nurses um, campaign, and we've actually provided multiple millions of dollars to numerous projects that are focused in on looking at nurse reimbursement um, in various settings, and these are items that we believe are scalable, that have the ability to move to other organizations, such as looking at the work of nurses in the community for patients that um, who may be between healthcare settings, be between primary care providers, um, and really need that connection, um, it, whether it's between after a hospitalization, getting, to, um, getting into the clinics, or just um, 
management of their chronic disease, what happens now is if a nurse does work in a clinic, um, that their care, you know, we don't know what nurses do because we don't have um, our own NPI number. We can get our NPI number. And what's one of the things the American Nurses Association is asking every RN and AP, every APRN to do is get your NPI number, National Provider Identifier. Um, so that when we do something such as care coordination, education, teaching, um, um, management, chronic disease management, we can put that down on the bill so that our numbers attached to that. So as it is now, typically the physicians will account for it and it'll roll up to them so that it looks like the physicians are actually doing these activities when it truly is in fact the nurses that are doing these activities. So one of the pieces is just saying we would just like credit and recognition for all the things we do. I think a lot of times people um, know what nurses do in a sense, but don't realize the extent that which we are um, doing care coordination activities um, across the board. And so being able to attach what's in the electronic health record to what's being billed on our behalf, even though we never see that, I think is really, really important. And that's the first step um, in being able to say, here's the value of that nurse um, in the clinic or in the community or even in a hospital. Um, for instance, um, nurses are in the bed charge um, in a hospital. So in the room rate. And so we have everyone outside the room rate. Um, and so it's really important to be able to say, this is the portion that's nursing care. And when it's in the bed rate, it's easy for administrators and finance individuals to you know, move that money around because you don't really see the impact from a nursing perspective. So that that's another component is being able to say, we don't want to be in the, re the, the hospital room rate any longer. We want to be pulled out or recognized separate um, so that you can see that this is that what you're being, you know, this is what nursing time is for you um, when you are in the hospitals as opposed to being the bed charge. So um, those are several of those pieces that we're looking at doing and, and focusing it on. Jennifer, you're ANA president. How did that come about? Tell us a little bit about yourself. So thank you. Um, I never would have in a million years thought I would have been ANA president. Um, I did decide I wanted to be a nurse when I was in high school, and I have been a nurse my entire life. And you know, the great thing about being a nurse is when you get your nursing degree, there are so many possible things that you can do with being a nurse. And I really do like change and making change happen. And I don't like to complain unless I'm going to do something about it. So I think that's how it got me involved. I got involved in my local state level nursing association. Um, and then it kind of just, just evolved from there where I, then I decided to run and be involved at a federal level with the American Nurses Association. And here I am today as president. Well, we're very glad you are. ANA President Jennifer Mensick Kennedy, thank you for joining us. And thanks to our audience for being here. Be sure to subscribe to our videos on YouTube. Find us on Facebook and X with our account name, CHC Radio. As always, you can go online to chcradio.com, sign up for our email updates, and also please share your thoughts and comments about this program. Dr. Mensick Kennedy, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare. Thank you. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. 
The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on healthcare or its affiliated entities.